everyone. This is Dr. Alex Avila with Love University, and we're back. I'm an author, psychologist, and speaker. Every week, we talk about how to love ourselves, others, and a higher nature, how to improve our finances, career, health, relationships, and spirituality. We have a very uh, interesting and, and wonderful guest today, Ilian Wu, who is a New York Times bestselling author of the book Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, an epic journey from slavery to freedom. And also, she wrote another great book, The Great Divorce, 19th Century Mother's Extraordinary Fight Against Her Husband, Shakers, and Her Times. Her writing has appeared in the Boston Globe, Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and the New York Times. She has received uh, support uh, for her research from the Whiting Foundation and the National Endowment of Humanities and the American Antiquarian Society. She holds a bachelor's degree in humanities from Yale University, or Yale, Yale College, uh, and a PhD in English from uh, Columbia University. She also has a background in art, music. She likes to sew, and she has a dog. Welcome, Ilian, to the show. You're like Thank a Renaissance so person. Much. Yeah, she has so many things going on. <laughs> there are a lot of things that I do enjoy doing, yes, yeah, that's, that's excellent. Now, psychology was my number one field, but history actually was my second that I really enjoyed. Um, and you have a, a tremendous novel here, or actually uh, a real, real book. Is this novel or is it uh, nonfiction? How would you classify it's it? It's narrative nonfiction. So ah. it's kind of like if a novel and a history book had a baby, it would be ah. narrative nonfiction. I see. It moves like, yes. uh, like fiction or it uses the strategies of fiction, storytelling, but it's deeply researched and there are even <laughs> hidden footnotes. Actually, that's excellent. So this is a fascinating story of, a, I guess, two uh, slaves in the South during the pre-Civil War time. And uh, the wife, uh, the, the the wife was actually half half white, and she passed herself up as a white man, uh, and had the husband act as a slave, and they actually escaped to the north in some kind of amazing uh, you know journey that they took. And this is uh, very interesting. Apparently, uh, she was uh, fathered by white uh, white slave owner James Smith, who was an attorney, prominent man, and uh, sold to her half sister uh, at the time. This is uh, Ellen. And then uh, actually, not not even sold, um, given away. Oh, yes, yeah. okay. that's right. Wedding yes. gift, gifted. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and then William was a tall, handsome uh, gentleman at the time, um, her uh, future husband. Mm -hmm. uh, and they said that they basically uh, read or heard about the Declaration of Independence, where they said all men are created equal, and a quote in the in the Bible that says, uh, "We shall be a nation made of one blood, all nations of men." But they didn't read, so how did they even learn about that stuff? Yeah, well, so they weren't literate because they were denied literacy. Um, the law forbid that enslaved people like themselves would be allowed to read and write. But they had other forms of literacy. I mean, they could they could read people. They could read situations. Mm -hmm. They used all these different kinds of learning in their escape. Mm -hmm. And how they learned these words from the Declaration of Independence is that as they listened, as they heard them. That's the thing. These re these words, these wonderful words, were read aloud on the the, the steps of these houses of justice. Ironically, mm. the very uh, in in Macon, the the, the the steps of the house of justice was precisely where William himself had been sold as a child. Mm. But these were the kinds of sites where people read aloud proudly. Americans read aloud these words from mm. the American uh, Declaration of Independence. And the crafts heard these words. We're not exactly sure where they heard these words, but we know they must have heard them. And they resonated because aren't they powerful words indeed? Yes. So that motivated their uh, eventual escape from the South to the North, where they would have found freedom. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a great story, but I mean, there are a lot of wonderful stories out there. What made you want to write this one and put all the time and energy to create this book? 
Well, this one was just, I mean, it, it just gripped me from the beginning. I was in graduate school at the time. I was kind of an unhappy graduate student, but I was very happy to be reading a lot of different amazing narratives. And I remember sitting in the quiet of this library, and this was assigned reading for a class on the literature of passing. And, you know, sometimes you just have these reading moments that just make your spine tingle and that you feel it kind of even in your body. That's the experience that I had reading Eleanor William Craft's words. And these are words that are ascribed to William Craft. If you open the narrative, it says William Craft as author. But we know that the two of them must have told the story together because he reports on things from her point of view that he could not have seen. So when I opened this narrative and I started reading the words, it just, um, I guess I really felt like I was almost hearing these words too. When we were talking earlier about like what it means to hear words aloud, there's almost an audio quality to Mm. these written words. I I felt very powerfully and I just, uh, I guess I wanted to know more. Mm. So A Thousand Miles to Freedom, if I recall, is the name of the, the, the original book, right? The yeah, Running a Thousand Miles to Freedom, yeah. published So you read that book and then it just inspired you as a graduate student to just perhaps write something, you know, like an up- updated version of it, you know, with more research behind it. Well, I think even, I mean, at that time, I didn't, I could, I don't think I ever would have dreamed that I'd be writing this book. It just kind of like lodged within me. Um, I actually turned to a different narrative I wrote at that time, which I read at that time, which became the basis of my first book. Uh, yes. The Great Divorce, and that was another sensational 19th century mm. narrative written by a woman named Eunice Chapman. Mm. But this, both of these stories really kind of gripped me and seemed to move off the page, you know. And the Crafts narrative, I guess, so when you when you pick it up, it's only 60 pages long. It's this mm. incredible adventure story, mm. really focused on their journey going from Georgia um, to Philadelphia. I mean, that's really the brunt of their narrative. And right. they're incredible sort of twists and turns like you know i mean from the moment when they're at the train station i mean they meet three different people mm. who could have recognized them they rec- there's a man who had once been in love with ellen yes. there is um a, a man uh, who william worked for since he was a young boy in a cabinet making yep. shop and finally there was a man a third man who ellen craft had actually like served dinner the night before in her enslaver's <laughs> household. I mean, it's and, really incredible the yeah, kind of things that happen here. Yes. So, like, I mean, just as a story, I find it yeah. found it incredibly gripping, and I couldn't stop turning the pages. Right. But there's also a lot of um, a lot of tremendous, profound uh, grief and pain and mm. trauma in the book right. that the crafts speak of a bit, but not in great detail. And yeah. I guess. One of the things I wanted to know about was what was the before and after of this journey? Ah, you like know, so if you have like this is an incredible like high wire act. Yes. Like what right. happened that led them to this point right. where they would just yes. risk absolutely everything? Yep. And then what happened afterwards? Because those are things they don't really explain in that sixty page narrative. Yes. So I what see. I wanted to know, I guess, was can we find answer to these questions? I mean, uh, can we figure out like why did they run exactly right. when they did? Yes. What motivated them? And yeah, what would sort of push them to put everything on the line right. for this like incredible like was, uh, This could be a great audiobook. The way you describe it, you can read <laughs> the story. <laughs> so you're like a historical sleuth. You're going back in time and yeah, yeah. finding things. And I it want to get like to detective the, work. Yes, I want to get to their actual story, what happens. But before that, yeah. I was reading about the slave slavery part. Now, I, always, I saw Roots a while back. Uh, that was very impactful. 
But this actually goes into more detail as to the lack of rights and how they were mistreated, the, the slaves. They said that they're legally presumed, a black person is legally presumed to be a slave. Anybody could question them, you know, a white person, and even give them so-called moderate correction. Yeah. It was a capital what offense. Is moderate correction? Yeah, correction, that, yeah right? that sounds like it could be a lot more than that. Uh, a capital offense to, I guess, injure, you know, if you got mad at the white person to injure them in some way. Uh, if you didn't have a pass to travel, they would get 20 lashes, I guess, on their, on their bare back. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a place called the Sugar House. I think it was in Charleston where it's actually really a beating of a horrible punishment place where they give them some quote-unquote sugar which means they're beaten with uh, severe paddles, whips, and there's something kind of treadmill where they have to run on it and they can fall under it and get, you know, I guess killed or something. Yeah, they call it like a perpetual staircase. I mean, mm. it's a treadmill that never stops. Yeah. And this is something that they, uh, you know, enslaved people are made to uh, walk upon after they've been tortured. So it's just, mm. it's incredible mm. torture, uh, oh. the site of this prison, this, this uh So it was, this it was a prison or, or what was it actually, this, this place? It was called a workhouse, um, but it was essentially a prison. Mm. And then they go there to be punished for some violations. They said like they had to have a curfew, they had to walk on roads, and they tip their hats. So stuff mm-hmm. like that to get them in this, in this place? Or? Well, I mean, it was up to their enslavers to decide what uh, you know what kind of actions or, or I mean, what, what the cause would be if there was any at all. I mean, mm. they could really just, enslavers had all the power mm. at this point, and they could- right. Uh, they they could um, send their the people they enslaved to the sugar house for really whatever reason they wanted, not by any rule, um, mm. really just based on desire, mm. uh, whim. Um, I see. So that, from that terrible background, you're saying that these uh, uh, Ellen and William actually had a little better than other slaves. You said she was a seamstress, he was a cabinet maker. He was able to hire himself out to make actual extra money, which uh-huh. is another thing that was a little unusual. Uh, and then you talk about her mother, I guess Maria, was also half white. And they said she was valued at $500, but at age 60, she was valued at $0. So how did that happen? Well, so actually, um, there are a few pieces, I guess, here. Um, let's let's talk about Maria first. Yes. So, yes, Maria was said to be um, uh, of partial, also white ancestry. Um, and she was enslaved by Ellen's biological father. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, she is tallied as b- being, you know, she's priced at $500. And this is one of the rare instances we have of sort of archival evidence for her existence um, from from her enslaver's records. And then there, what I had noticed was there is another Maria. So this is actually, she's sure. listed in this um, list of enslaved people who are part of a larger list of property that uh, James Smith owned at yeah. the time of his death. So they were just kind yeah. of tallying everything. So right. there's this huge list of enslaved people. Maria Allen's mother is one of them. Mm. But then there's another woman named Maria. Mm. And that woman was listed as being zero, zero, zero in value mm. because, she, because she was aged. Right. And that's the, one of the terrible things about this oh. economy, this brutal mm. economy about of, of slavery, is that you had you actually have these listings of what the value of human beings would be. And they, at, at first, from childhood to adulthood, they increase with age, but then there's a certain point at which the value mm. starts to decrease. And you can actually see mm. these listings. I have sources mm. for them in my book. So with this, with the mother, Maria, the mother, that wasn't the same one that was at 60 at zero. Was that a different Maria? So that was a different Maria. Okay. That was a different Maria. I but see. it's possible. I mean, it's possible. One of the reasons why I named that second Maria is it's possible yeah. that they were related. It's possible that okay. that 
60-year-old mm-hmm. Maria was the mm-hmm. mother um, of of the 40-year-old Maria. And right. that, she, who knows, she might have been the grandmother of Ellen. We don't know. Um, that's, that's, again, part of the brutality of these lists is that they give us so much, little information to go off of. What, what would be the value based on? I mean, if she's half white, does that make her more or less valuable or some other traits about her? Well, I think it all comes down to labor and how much uh, how much money, profit can be extracted from the forced labor of these enslaved people. <laughs> Their intelligence or abilities or whatever, is that part of it as well? Yes. I mean, it's how much, again, like how much labor they can perform. Um, it's who, who knows exactly what price is set upon a human mm. life, right? I mean, there's no yeah. life that can be, it's no price that can be set upon uh, a human life. But there were various factors in these times, mm. um, including gender, including age, mm. um, in some contexts, probably including color. Mm. Now, James Smith uh, apparently had sex with Maria and then um, Ellen was born or he raped her or whatever may have happened. And then his wife was extremely angry, I guess, and jealous, or perhaps, because he, she looked, like, I guess, like the father uh, in terms of appearance. And also, you said she, she lost two children at childbirth, uh, uh, Catherine's, I believe. And then, uh, but when the other girl survived, you know, she survived. So does that make her very angry? Yeah, I mean, it's an immensely complex situation. And the crafts address mm-hmm. it from the first page of that 1860 narrative. They say, and this is William's voice, they say, my wife's, for, William says, my fir- my wife's first master was her father Whoa. and her mother his slave and the latter is still the slave of Whoa. his widow so like think about how much is going oh. on in that one sentence right Whoa. um and as far as i mean what i did in terms of the research is sort of to find out more i mean in the narrative they don't say they don't identify james smith they don't tell Whoa. us much about the father or the wife or yeah. or the mother but the records do show that again the mother's name was maria the father's name was james the yeah. mistress's name um is uh, elizabeth yeah. um or eliza cleveland smith yeah. and we know so we can know certain concrete things about these individuals from these records one of the things that we know is that ellen's mother was 18 years old at the time that she gave birth to ellen we don't know anything about the circumstances of Ellen's birth or anything mm. like that. We do know, as you indicated, that, and because the the crafts write about this, that James Smith's wife was angered um, mm. by Ellen's very existence, and especially um, by the fact uh, that she bore a striking physical resemblance mm. to her father. And so she would often be mistaken as a legitimate child of the family, meaning uh, Eliza Cleveland Smith's own daughter, and that yeah. made her really, really upset. So that's yeah. that much uh, they tell us. But we don't know. You know, we know that if James, James Smith was like a surveyor, a lawyer, and all mm. these things, he was right. he was old enough to be Maria's own father. He mm. had children who were barely older uh, than she was right. at the time of Ellen's birth. Um, and we know that there was in his legal statutes no such thing as the rape of an enslaved child. I mean, there's no definition for that. Um, and there was no such thing as consent between an enslaver like James Smith and an enslaved person like Maria. Um, yeah. That much we know. Right. And then on, on the other side, so you do a nice job of alternating stories. You have Ellen, you have William, 
And then you're talking about William seeing his um, sister knocked down or actually sold, which is very traumatic for him. And then he was sold apparently for twice the usual value, $1,750 at the time. Uh, and then he somehow was able to pay the owner two fifty a year so he can loan himself out to do other work. But how First of all, why would they pay him twice as much and why would the owner agree to that? Uh, you know, the, that arrangement. Well, to begin with, in terms of his value, um, we were talking earlier about the different factors that contribute to, to an enslaved person's value as property to their enslaver. Mm -hmm. And in William's case, he had this incredible skill. I mean, he was a really gifted cabinet maker. Mm -hmm. So he could make, produce these high quality, high valued items. And mm -hmm. that's also something that sort of extended his value because, you know, if you're, if you're somebody who's employed in the field, right, um, a lot of people who worked in the field, they would just, they'd physically just become destroyed after like just a couple of years. Yes. But with a cabinet maker, with an artist or an artisan, you have these skills that actually mature and grow over time, um, and you're not physically taxed in the same way. So there's a long-term value for a person like William. Um, mm. So for, I mean, that's that's ostensibly, but who knows what other factors might have also been considered in the price and why others might sure. have been valuing him mm -hmm. um, at this sort of double yeah. rate for a 16-year-old. But certainly his skills uh, factor into that. And as far as like why the person who bought him uh, would consent to this kind of arrangement. It was where, a legal arrangement at the time, right? Yeah, where, where uh, William basically, uh, he what he arranges for at age 16, and this is unusual, um, <clears throat> but not by any means, um, you know, uh, exceptional. Um, he has it so that the enslaver gets paid a certain amount of money per year. And then whatever William is able to earn beyond that, um, he gets to keep for himself. So this was actually legally not allowed, but it's right. something that people uh, in cities like Macon would uh, would sort of, you know, turn a turn a you know turn away from because it was such a good deal for the enslavers. Right. So from the enslavers point of view, he doesn't have to pay for William's uh, housing or his food yeah. or his clothing. William has to take care of all that. He just gets a set amount of money every year. And that money right. could possibly grow as William himself matures and skills develop. But, but, but William was um, very angry creates... about this. He was he didn't like it, apparently. He, he was angry that he had to do this. Give the William. Money. Yes, William. Yes. I mean, can you imagine like if you were performing all this work and yeah. you were, you know, the legal property of another person right. and, and uh, all all the fruits of your labor, all the money that you earned would be given to this person who presumes to own you and that you couldn't claim any of that, let alone yourself yeah. for yourself. I mean, it was enraging. Exactly. Now, then we get into the journey. Now, here's where it gets into exciting movie um, kind of material where they're uh, going to plan to escape. And he said they took four days to plan, and the journey actually took four days to go north, uh, I guess, a 1,000 miles. And here's some interesting questions. I think you kind of answer these, but maybe there's more depth. First of all, they got a, they had a pistol. So we want to find out what they use it for or what they use it for and how they got it. Uh, and they got a pass to travel because at that time they had to get a pass. I think you said, they said something about they were going to visit a, dead, a dying relative or something, so they gave uh -huh. them a pass. And the third thing is, um, how did she decide to become Mr. Johnson? Uh, how did all that come into play? So, the, you know, this, this white character. 
I think the details of Mr. Johnson are pretty complicated. So that's something you might actually, readers might, uh, or listeners may want to actually just look into the book for that because it, it takes up uh, probably much more okay. than I can sum okay. up in a, <laughs> very okay. briefly. Um, but in terms of actually the gun, let's talk about the gun. That's interesting. That is something that really surprised me. I mean, mm. it's one of those research moments where I just kind of like dropped everything. Yes. Um, and it came completely unexpectedly because the crafts do not talk about traveling with a gun in their narrative. Mm. There's no mm. mention of that. Uh, um, and in fact, if they'd been caught with any kind of weapon, I mean, that was also considered contraband mm. and there mm. would have been severe mm. repercussions. I mean, there but, was sort of a terror across the South following these different slave insurrections, including um, the rebellion of Nat Turner, which is um, what sort of inspired this kind of deep uh, lockdown that that caused an almost like police state-like mentality, um, this crackdown on people gathering, on arming, on having access to horses and information and such, um, because there was this real fear. Um, and one of the biggest fears is the idea of enslaved people being armed. Right. Um, so this is not something that they would have disclosed in their book. And in fact, where I discovered this was in newspapers from the 1870s. So the crafts in the 1870s, by this time, they have created, uh, they've gone back to Georgia. And you can, again, read more about that in their book, uh, uh, in my book, as well as because um, mm -hmm. they don't actually discuss this in their book. Um, but they go there, they've started this school and agricultural cooperative for now newly emancipated people. But the world is still not ready for the scope of their dreams. And um, you can look again in the details uh, for the details in the book, but I'll just say that William is uh, involved in a lawsuit. And in this lawsuit, he goes back at both he and women, well, um, Ellen take the stand and both of them talk about their past experiences. And this is where William talks about his moment of first arrival in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at their actual narrative and how they tell there, it's almost described in kind of um, like a very dramatic and almost humorous way because mm -hmm. they arrive in Philadelphia and, you know, they say their prayers. Ellen um, changes out of her uh, disguise. And then when they come back down, the person who receives them is like, uh, says to William, where's your master? And they say, and he says, right here. And the guy says, no, no, like, where's your master? And he says, right here. And they go back and forth a couple of times. And then, you know, finally, like the joke is that William was like, this is the same person, you know? Um, so in the narrative, it's kind of rendered almost like you kind of see it as like a, like a stage play moment. But yeah. what William tells us in the, in the 1870s when he's on the stand if he says that when he actually arrives in Philadelphia, it didn't happen that way, is Ellen went to a different room and William takes out this gun that he has <clears throat> and he shows it to uh, the the um, the innkeeper and he says, he, he says, this is who we are. We've just escaped bondage. And if you try to stop us or if you try to send us back, I'm not afraid to use this weapon. <clears throat> so it's only because he takes the stand. <clears throat> uh, this is... Um, you know, decades after he's actually made the escape that we know no. that they've traveled with a gun. Like, wow, amazing research on that. Now, the other thing, <laughs> now, just to be clear, so people listening to this, uh, Ellen was dressed up as a man. Uh, she had a sling on her arm because she couldn't write, so that would explain <laughs> that. 
Uh, you have something that uh, poultices, is that what it's called, something around your face? Yeah, it's kind of like wet bandages. Wet bandages <laughs> to, to indicate that you can't talk, right? Because she doesn't want to give away that she's not a, a male. Yeah, and let's voice. not forget that she doesn't have any hair on her face, right? No hair um, on the face, yes. And yeah. also, she's terrified. So well, it yes. gives her kind of like a mask. Exactly. But the uh-huh. key part here is that people sit next to her. Some of them even know her, apparently, uh-huh. or something. And she has to make conversation. And one, one guy says something like, it's a nice day or it's a fine morning today. And then she, she says nothing. And then she pretends to be deaf, but the guy insists, right? He keeps, and, and this is a guy that apparently knows her as a, as a female. And then someone else comes and says, oh, leave the poor deaf person alone or something like that. Or, uh, you know, it's too bad to be deaf. So it seems like people rescue them at these opportune moments where she has to say something uh, that could incriminate them. So how, how does that work? Yeah, way? you know, one of the things that uh, kind of is amazing about the story again and again is how the kindness of strangers, unintended kindness hmm. of strangers, um, ends up helping them. So people, I feel like it shows that if people were just not um, so focused on color, if they could see, you know, and all these prejudices, if they could see past their prejudices hmm. and really just see people for like their present circumstances, their suffering, um, that there's a willingness on behalf mm. of strangers to help other people. But it's because of these layers of, mm. um, of, of, of preconceptions and prejudices and created hates that we have that um, we're not able to see past those things. Well, um, and that when people are really able to uh, tune into like another person's uh, suffering or reality, um, mm. they're willing to help. And that happens mm. again and again for the mm. crafts. And the crafts, mm. Also, they cultivate this goodwill with the mm. people that they speak with. Yeah. So it's not just that they're like conning them, right? Mm. It's that they have this disguise, but they're able to have these moments of interaction with people that causes the other people to trust them, that wins them over. Uh, and, and then in moments where of, of need, uh, other people, these, these people will sometimes rise um, to the occasion, of course, without knowing what they're doing. Of course. The other thing is they're saying that when they go to Charleston, I think Charleston is um, like Southern hospitality and uh-huh. people are friendly and they smile. And before she was being very curt, she didn't want to give anything away. But I think she had to re-strategize and say, I got to be a little more open, a little more, you know, so-called charming. And it says she talked to some family people or some women or something. In a charming yeah, way. I mean, I think the thing, that, that's another aspect of this performance. And this is why I want to, again, one of the reasons why I was just so... Um, taken by the story because and why you can study it sort of endlessly is that it's not like there's like a single fix or a single strategy that gets them through they're constantly Mm. improvising Mm. they're Mm. constantly recalibrating their Mm. performance Mm. they're constantly you know thinking on their feet and creating new new um, connections with people Mm. um uh i mean they're really really creative um, as actors on this journey, right. and then later as storytellers too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's um, so. I guess like with the book, it's something where obviously we know that from they they go from point A to B, and from B to C, and mm-hmm. C to D, and that they there's this this kind of like Hollywood arc. You might even be able to say, but yeah. it's really the how of the journey that I find to be just mesmerizing. I'm mm-hmm. I remain awestruck by them mm-hmm. today. So I did. And they said they got ca- almost caught several times. One time the clerk got angry because she didn't want to sign her name. And this officer that talked to her earlier, a little bit drunk, he said, oh, I vouch for her. And then some other guy signed her name for her. So, it's, again, people to the rescue 
uh, be compassionate, but not really know who they are. Because if they knew they're runaway slaves, they would not have been so compassionate, I don't think. Right. So these are people who are acting um, kindly, acting with compassion right. because they are not seeing. That's the thing. They're seeing them as human beings. But not but as not, race. Yeah. But they're not but they're not seeing the fullness of, of them through their identities. Right. Exactly. But I mean, there are people coming to the rescue. So synchronicity, you know, the Jungian term, you know, that meaningful coincidences that can help people get through things. That's in play here. Uh, almost a spiritual, uh, you know, kind of... Um, you know, the word angels, have you heard that term where certain people come into your life and they help you and then they kind of disappear? But, you know, you can call them angels or something. In some, in I suppose. I mean, I, I was thinking about that with, there's another wonderful book that I mm. was actually deeply inspired by called Rena's Promise. Mm. Um, and it's this uh, the story of, of two sisters who survive Auschwitz. Oh. And there's a moment um, in the story, uh, Heather Dune McAdam is the one who speaks with uh, Rena, I think, Hornweibel. Um, and 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 uh, together they render the story um, of Rena's promise. But this young woman, Rena, is in the, the camps, and she thinks, you know, there's a moment, a critical moment, where it's like she is she's going to be gassed, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's there's no way that she's not going to be chosen. But she somehow she senses the presence of her mother, and mm-hmm. she, um, I, I don't want to give like all the details. I want people to be able to experience this moment for themselves, Mm -hmm. but it's a moment of just intense concentration. And you might say like serendipity or a magic happening Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. where she's able to sail through. I mean, it's really Mm -hmm. incredible and Mm -hmm. unbelievable. And the way they tell this is just, it's really, really worth reading. But I thought about that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, In the case of the crafts, I don't see it so much as it being external angels coming to save them, Mm-hmm. As it is, as Ellen herself channeling and finding within her mm-hmm. this um, this this faith, um, as well as a sense of power um, yeah. that enabled her, her to rise up to these particular situations, and right. the way in which again she improvises, and the way in which she constantly recalibrates the situations, mm-hmm. and the way she uh, inventively. Uh, develops as a performer are really extraordinary. Mm. But there is one particular moment where it's not just that she's, it's a moment where she's required to stand up, but it's not right. that she, just that she's exerting herself. It's actually a moment of radical surrender where well, she tunes into something bigger than herself. And mm. again, I'll let, I'll let hopefully um, <laughs> readers, listeners discover that moment because okay. I feel are, like- Are you talking about when they try to cross the river and she loses the husband? Is that the point? Uh or I mean, she actually thought she lost him, but he actually fell asleep. That- I have another moment in another mind, moment. Oh, okay. but I think that they need to be seen um, yeah. in context because there is really kind of a pattern of growth right. Um, right. and kind of a spiritual arc that you might right. say right. comes through the the course of this thousand mile journey. Right. Because I think when she thought she lost her husband, she says, I'm going to go ahead. He's going to meet me there. So she had faith that somehow he would get through. Uh, she said he had money and a gun or something, and you know she had faith she would see him. So that's kind of interesting that they had this continual belief in their freedom and also to help others as well. Now, when they get there, they get to Philadelphia. I guess they meet other activists, and they start to do speeches, and they're interviewed. Uh, and then they go to Boston, I believe, and they settle in there. But something happens. Apparently, there's a slave act where uh-huh. people can actually get, come get them, uh, and some people try to get them. So what happened with, with the slave hunters? Did they try to get them and bring them back? 
Yes, they do. And the thing that is, again, um, when we are going back to their faith and we're going back to their courage, and we haven't talked about this yet, but I know one of the themes of your show is love. Uh, the fact is that, I mean, they are almost, it's its like they're putting targets on their back well, uh, for slave hunters, and they know yes. this. Right. The very moment they get to the North, because it's not like yeah. they get to the North and they're like, Okay, we are going to anonymous, like uh, what do you call it? what is yeah. the program? But yeah, we're going to become anonymous. We're going to pursue our own happily ever after. Really? You mentioned this before too that they they do this for other people as well. Sure. So at a point where they could really be just seeking their own freedom. I mean, if they had gone to Canada at that point, that would be pretty much it. So, so that was original plan, but after like yeah, yeah they, they don't do that. Yeah. They don't do that. Uh, and what they do instead, I think. Um, you know, inspired by the love that they have for each other, but also for all the people still in bondage, all those people who uh, they had to leave behind, they tell their story. And they, in doing so, I mean, they become like phenomenons, right? They Look. become like celebrities. People want to hear their story. People want to see them. These are like, they're, they happen to be really good looking, really well-spoken, um, great storytellers. And, you know, the the nation is following like you can see like advertisements for yeah. their speaking you right. can see like write-ups of the speeches you can see summaries of their story in newspapers across the country which means guess what like mm -hmm. it's not just going to be friendly people who are reading these stories right but enemies too and more particularly the people who enslave them mm -hmm. so at any point once they reach the north and right. they start telling their story the slave hunters could come after them. Can you imagine? They go into these halls where it's mm -hmm. like sometimes there are thousands of people gathered and they're telling their story and they don't know who could be out there. There could be slave hunters in the crowd. Right. And they're not just all like universally, uh, you know, appreciative audiences. This is dangerous work. Right. E you know, even among Northerners, there are people who are really opposed to abolition. Mm -hmm. um, and there are people who will pelt speakers with refuse and you know rotten yeah. eggs and things like that and scream yeah. them down it's really dangerous and they take this upon themselves mm -hmm. not knowing who is going to be out there yeah. um whether enemy or friend uh and they mm -hmm. and they tell the story they tell their story Look. they they fight for the freedom of uh you know um, all those people who are still in bondage and for yes. their future children and for exactly. them, as well as for themselves. Right. So they escaped from the slave hunters and then they moved to England. Apparently they lived there happily for, I think, 18 years, you said. Uh, the husband goes to Africa, opens a school. She's in England also helping people. And then they returned to the U.S., apparently the South Carolina, I believe. Uh, they Initially. Buy a, mm -hmm. South Carolina. And then they buy, I guess, a plantation or they build a, a school and all that. But that that gets burned down, I guess, by the called Night Riders. What, what are those people, Night Riders? Uh, these are, you know, white supremacists. This is we're mm. talking about a really, you know, again, a really dangerous time in our in our nation's history. This is post emancipation, uh, um, in a time called, you know, it, you go from Reconstruction to a period known as as a redemption, in which uh, sort of everything is, is is reversed and you have a, a campaign of terror against black people um, and formerly enslaved people where where you know there's a protest against against there being any kind of equal order um, and in the middle of all this in the middle of this time of terror and violence 
uh, you know, when actually they're being warned by people in the North, don't go there, don't mm -hmm. go to the South, like you're, the KKK is going to kill you, you're going right. to get lynched. Right. Um, the crafts go, and initially, as you said, they go to South Carolina, uh, and and their place is burned down. You know, they, they barely escape this fire, and I can mm -hmm. imagine that a lot of their papers, a lot of their belongings were also destroyed. We right. only, we, we, thankfully, there are some records from their past, but I wonder if that the archive might, might have been much larger um, if uh, if that fire had not taken place. Right. And even then, despite that fire, they mm. they they do it again. You know, that, they they raise but, more funds, and they this time they're they're close. To, they're in Georgia now. They're uh, mm. close to Savannah in Bryan mm. County. Right. And they start another school, and they start another agricultural cooperative yeah. on the grounds of a former plantation. And um, one of the most moving things that I found was a quotation from an a, a, an 106-year-old woman who had been enslaved on that property. Hmm. And she had lost 15 children. Wow. 15 children had been stolen from her. Wow. Um, and she, you know, she remembers the, the blood that flowed on that plantation. Mm. But now she calls it like the temple of a living God. They have reborn this place. They have mm. made it a place of love and learning um, where there's a school and people are walking for miles with their shoes off, mm. uh, coming to the school, um, slipping their shoes on and practicing their worship, practicing their learn, mm. acquiring their literacy. Um, mm. laboring it's it's an incredible thing that the crafts do is right. to is to build this community right and they were uh, were they christian people or spiritual people uh, the craft oh deeply yes i mean and that's another major theme that sort of runs through mm. the entire narrative that they mm. write runs through their journey um is is their faith oh great powerful and i guess the, the legacy yeah the schools their story and also the children you said they have 5 out of 7 surviving children and some of them did some accomplishing certain things. What did the children do? Oh, I mean, so they have, yes, they have seven children that we know of. Um, I actually thought six at the time of writing. Right. Uh, but I learned from the descendants of the crafts that there that there is actually at least one other child who died when they were mm. uh, in the United Kingdom. Right. And most of the descendants now that I know of are descended from their first son, Charles wow. Eslin Phillips Craft. Oh, okay. um, and he was born uh, in England. Really? Um, but there was another son who actually returned to the United Kingdom to live. Um, and, you know, you can read about the more details about mm. the children and find mm. the sources for them in, sure. my, in my book. But what I did want to, you know, say is that this family continues on today. Yes. So the great, great, it goes up to five greats. Uh, wow. I have met great, great, great grandchildren of the crafts. Oh, wow. okay. um, a great, great granddaughter, mm. uh, several great, great granddaughters, but one who actually who who spoke of remembering holding her grandfather's hand. That's Look. Henry Kempton Craft. Henry mm. Kempton Craft remembers holding William Craft's hand. Wow! As they were, you know, as um. As they were on this, that the grounds of that property mm -hmm. uh, where that school had once been, and Henry Kempton Craft remembered standing with William Craft and watching the train, the the train go by. Um, so it's really two touches or two mm -hmm. memories away from mm -hmm. the crafts. There is a living legacy that continues to this day, and the this descendants is. are. There are many of them, and they've done extraordinary things themselves. Right. Love, as we say, legacy. Love University is your greatest legacy. You know, the people you, you give love to when you're alive and, you know, hopefully uh, beyond. 
Well, and the, yeah, that, this is a great love story. These two individuals, you know, loved each other so much. Uh, and I guess they got legally married later in life, or when did they get legally married? Uh, could they have gotten married? Well, so they were they were married in bondage, but of course, slave oh. marriages were not legally recognized. It oh, was okay. not till death do us part, but till mm-hmm. the enslavers do us part, um, which is one of the reasons why they decided really on the eve of their having to escape the United States, they mm-hmm. have uh, a, a wedding ceremony conducted okay. by a rebel preacher. It's a pretty oh, like intense and uh, mm-hmm. uh, a moment that I describe in my book. And I actually got to set foot into the very room where it happened what very we, recently. Um, it's a privately owned home, but it's a house. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an underground railroad station mm-hmm. uh, owned by Lewis and William. Uh, sorry, Lewis and Harriet Hayden, who themselves mm-hmm. were self-emancipated people, oh. extraordinary individuals and activists. And mm-hmm. in their home, Ellen and William Craft, at this incredibly fraught moment, um, right. historically and for themselves, wow. they were married legally. Now, uh, I think this has been a wonderful interview, and this book is really amazing. I really um, like your passion about this. You know, it sounds like you're bringing this alive. You know, history for some people is dry, but you're kind of giving a lot of the juice and uh, energy to it and love, Thank which is you. amazing. And I, I think the the takeaways, I would say, you know, like you said, you know, what do we learn from this? Now, you did say, see past prejudice into compassion and love. Uh, are there any other t- takeaways that you can give our listeners to and people uh, from the story, you know, like psychological Well, I mean, I guess one thing I've been thinking a lot about, because July 1st was the day that my mentor, Robert Ferguson, uh, who is a professor of law and literature at Columbia University, um, he passed away on July 1st. And uh, and one thing that he really reminded me of before he died um, as something being as being really essential to the understanding of the story is the importance of the mutuality of marriage. And those are his words, the mutuality of marriage. And how, and he was speaking based on his own experience because he was also in incredible pain when he was sick and he underwent, you know, really um, challenging physical treatments. Um, And he undertook this and and a lot um, of other things, I think, in life Mm. um, uh, with a strength that he derived from the mutuality of marriage that he experienced with his wife, um, Priscilla mm. Parkhurst Ferguson, who also mm. uh, passed away not long after he mm. did. So what his reminder was is that is the centrality of marriage and love mm. to the craft's escape. How mm. how love um, and this kind of this kind of um, empowering bond can give you the strength to do and to achieve what you might never even dream of being able to achieve on your right. own. Right. So it was like how synergy or, you know, the two is greater than the individual parts. Uh-huh. Uh, so when we say mutuality, we, each of them give each other something of strength to make them uh-huh. stronger. I see. Yes. Beautiful. Well, it's been a wonderful way of having you on the show today. We'd love to have you on back if you have, you have more books. I'm sure you're, all, you're very creative. So you're probably, <laughs> are, are, are you working on any, anything new or thinking about new things? Projects or I am, I am thinking about various new things, but nothing mm-hmm. I can fully articulate as of yet. Okay, yeah. where can people hear more about you, your website and uh, books and things like that? Would you say? Yes, I I've recently gotten on Instagram, and I plan to post there and on my website www.lianwu.com, i l y o n w o o dot com. More resources, historical resources, um, images, lots of other things that um, that sort of go beyond the book. I see. So you want people to learn more and to, you know, really capture the story within themselves. 
Yes, the, the book is the start, I hope, of a conversation. Fantastic. I really I like the idea that history can instill love in people's minds and hearts, that you know you can recreate uh, the past and also for the future, you know, for people that, to bring these lessons into real life. And that's what Love University is about. So thank you again for coming. Uh, this is Dr. Alex Avila, Love University, Love Yourself, Others of Higher Nature. You want to have compassion for others, empathy, and also create history today that's going to be positive for tomorrow. So next time, this is Dr. Alex Avila. So that was a really fascinating interview with Ilian Wu, master slave, how this loving couple transcended racism and, and danger and prejudice to really have faith and love in their relationship and also to help other people who were enslaved at the time. Uh, and the message is loving yourself, loving others, loving higher nature. And the faith is what helped them get through, loving each other, and also loving themselves, having the self-esteem and the confidence to go beyond the barriers and obstacles of the time. So if you want to be on a future show, if you want to comment on today's show, you can reach us at 310-226-8090. Visit us at loveuniversity.love. Write to us at loveuniversitylove at gmail.com. You can download the podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, and iTunes. You can like us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Love Letter You Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Love Letter You Podcast. Until next time, this is Dr. Alex Avila. Put your way, your notebooks, your iPads, your phones. Love you universally. Class is now dismissed.